The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Exodus 20, verse 1 and following. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We come now in our study of the Ten Commandments to the Fourth Commandment. Began looking at it last time and I think we will be looking at it again, God willing, next time as well. As I mentioned last time, this is a complex issue for us to know how we are to observe the Sabbath day. And tonight I'm not going to go into uh, in depth the aspects of what make it complex, but there seem to be scriptures on the one side that uphold the sanctity of the Sabbath rest for Christians in the New Covenant and those that seem to give us freedom and seem to uh, hint that the Sabbath has been theologically fulfilled in our rest in Christ. And so uh, there are Christians on both sides of this issue. I was reading recently a, an article in a book about the Puritans and J.I. Packer, in that book, he wrote an article on the uh, Puritan view of the uh, Sabbath. And he made a provocative statement. He said the Puritans created the English Christian Sunday. That is the conception and observance of the first day of the week as one on which both business and organized recreation should be in abeyance and the whole time left free for worship, fellowship, and good works. In order to back up the statement, he gave a uh, historical summary of what life was like in England at the end of the 16th century. It sounded familiar, just the words were a little different. It was the Englishman's custom after church was over to pass the rest of Sunday in, quote, frequenting of body stage plays, May games, church ales, feasts and wakes, in piping, dancing, dicing, carding, bowling, tennis playing, bear baiting, cockfighting, hawking, 
hunting and such like, in keeping fairs and markets on the Sabbath, in football playing, not what you're thinking of, but something else, football playing and such other devilish pastimes. That's a quote from somebody who lived at the time. When was the last time you went to a bear baiting? And not just on the Sabbath, but on any day of the week. But uh, these were the kind of things that people would do. Everybody was required to go to church. But after church was over, uh, basically people did anything that they wanted in terms of recreation. Now, serious Christians at the time, read Puritans, were exceedingly concerned about this. In 1618, King James I of the King James Bible issued a declaration called uh, the Declaration of Sports. And in that Declaration of Sports, he stated that apart from bull baiting and bear baiting, anything else, all the popular games of the day, might be played on Sundays after church. In 1633, King Charles I republished the Declaration of Sports and ordered that it be read by the clergy from the pulpit of every church. Any who refused to do so lost their positions, their living. And uh, many refused to read the Declaration of Sports and they lost their pulpits as a result. Richard Baxter, who's a Puritan minister in the, in the um, 17th century, described what life was like in the England of his youth. He said, in my youth, one of my father's own tenants was the town piper, and the place of the dancing assembly was not a hundred yards from our door, and we could not on the Lord's day either read a chapter or pray or sing a psalm or catechize or instruct a servant, but with the noise of the pipe and tabor and shouting in the street continually in our ears, we were the common scorn of all the rabble in the streets, and we were called Puritans and precisions and hypocrites because we chose rather to read the scriptures than do as they did. And when the people by the king's declaration were allowed to play and dance out uh, of public service time once the service was over, they could so hardly break off their sport that many a time the reader was fain to stay that he had to stop reading scripture until the pipe and players would give over. And sometimes the Morris dancers would come into the church in all their linen and scarves and antic dresses with Morris bells jingling at their legs during the service. And as soon as the common prayer was read out, did haste out presently to their play again. Was this a heavenly conversation? Now this is what Baxter said life was like. Basically everybody came to church because they had to. And as soon as they could, whoosh, out they went to the play. And uh, you could imagine the jingling of the bells and all that as they stood or knelt or did all the things in the service. But little by little, Puritan teaching had effect in England. And by the end of Baxter's, Baxter's min ministry at Kidderminster, what had previously been a brawling, drunken, irreligious community was so changed that on the Lord's Day there was no disorder to be seen in our streets, as a quote, that you might hear a hundred families singing psalms, repeating sermons, talking about spiritual things as you pass through the streets, end quote. By 1677, even when the Puritans were out of power and in disgrace, why they were in disgrace is an interesting question, but they were, a violently anti-Puritan parliament passed the Sunday Observance Act. It prescribed that all should spend Sunday not in trading or traveling in, or in worldly labor or business or work of their ordinary callings, but in exercising themselves in the duties of piety and true religion publicly and privately. That was the law of the land by the time they got done in the 17th century. Now you might say to yourself, how does this relate uh, to us in the 21st century? Well, I was thinking as I was sitting in the pew there, what if Christians just had no interest whatsoever in maintaining a kind of strict observance legally? Um, what would happen in our, um, in our culture? 
Uh, suppose you were required by your employer to go to work seven days a week. And I thought, is that really likely? And I thought, probably not, because Americans are so in love with the weekend and so live for it that there's a strong secular force, a secular drive to maintain the, the weekend. So I didn't think that was very likely. I thought rather more likely what would happen is the attitude, the drive toward the weekend, would come in to the church and affect people's attitudes toward going to church and toward any religious observances on Sunday and little by little begin to make it all seem a burden. And that, I think, is more likely to happen. So as I come to this subject, I come as somebody who's learning and who's growing in my understanding of what God is calling us to do. This is what the commandment says. Remember, this is in verse 8 and following. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now last time we saw that the Sabbath day literally means a day of ceasing or stopping or resting. Uh, it finds its origin in the creation week as we saw in Genesis 2 that God would God ceased from his work on the seventh day and set that day apart as holy and so that is the foundation of the Sabbath command. Uh, we also saw what the people were commanded to do. First and foremost, they were to remember the day. It was to be a day of thinking, a day in the heart and in the mind. And they were to remember it in a specific way by keeping it holy. Now this word holy, I think in this context, means set apart unto the Lord's use. Later in the book of Exodus, there are going to be a number of accoutrements and, and utensils and pots and pans and, and incense and anointing oil. All of it is called holy unto the Lord. As a matter of fact, in one of the chapters in Exodus, there's a, a special incense and the uh, ingredients are listed there in the book of Exodus. But then there's a warning saying, no one must make any incense of this recipe for their own use. It is to be holy unto the Lord. So that's what I think of when I think of this command. The command of the Ten Commandments is that the day is set apart unto God for his uh, special service. And so they were to keep the day holy. It was to be a different kind of day. The essence of it was that they were to stop working. They were to cease or to desist from, uh, from work. The extent of this command was everybody in the home. Uh, that included the animals. And so we see there is somewhat of a physical creation aspect to it. Uh, the animals were not under the covenant uh, of Moses, uh, and yet they were under this protection that they would cease or stop or rest. Later on in the history of the Old Testament, the land, it said, had its Sabbath rest during the 70 years that Israel was in uh, exile in Babylon. And so there's a physical aspect to it. To some degree, then, the Sabbath is a testimony of our own weakness, our frailty, our limitation. We can't just go on working forever. We can't. I mean, there's a limit to it. Even the communist countries that sought to do away with any sense of the Sabbath and have, for example, 10-day work weeks eventually came down to a seven-day work week. Now, very interesting, the cycle, six days on, one day off, uh, they established not from spiritual reasons, but just from scientific studies. They just saw that the workers worked better on that uh, cycle. <laughs> what do you know? But the Lord knew us, and as Jesus said, and we'll talk about later, uh, this man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made to benefit man. It was for our benefit. So there's a physical side to it, and so whether you were under the covenant or not, it applied to you. 
if you lived in an Israelite home, even if you were not an Israelite, even if you were a foreigner, even if you were an animal, uh, you would rest on the Sabbath day. That was the extent. Now, the reason we saw again last time was twofold, I think. Uh, looking backward and looking forward. Looking backward, we're looking back at God's kingly rule over all things. They're going to remember the day that God ceased from all of his work and in effect sat down on his kingly throne to rule. So it's in effect a way of bowing the knee to the sovereignty of God. Uh, in effect saying, you are our king and we will do what you want. You are the Lord. We're going to focus on you and we're going to think about you. So it's a looking back at, create, at creation. But it's also a looking ahead to the day, I think eschatologically, and time when we will cease from all of our labors as well in heaven. Uh, to some degree we will eat uh, from the tree of life, even in the old covenant, looking ahead to the day when uh, there would be freedom from the cycle of, of hard labor in this cursed earth that we live in as a result of the fall in which we might enter into God's rest. We're going to talk more about that, not this time, but next time with the book of Hebrews. So we're looking backward at God's uh, creation and his sovereign rule, his kingly rule over this physical world, and looking ahead to heaven. Uh, that's the purpose of the uh, the meditation focus in the command. Now, the Old Testament history of the Sabbath is very interesting as you look at it. It was repeated later at other places. For example, Exodus 31:16 and following, it says the Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. So there it is in Exodus 31, uh, 16 and 17. Interesting, in Exodus 31, 17, the New American Standard translation has God in a very uh, you know, anthropomorphic way. He ceased from work and literally was refreshed. Now, that's what the word says there in Exodus 31. But in effect, I think God lowering himself to our level and saying that he was refreshed. We don't think in any way that God needed refreshing. But it's interesting, the terminology there in Exodus 31, 17. Um, we also see it, if you want to take a minute and look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Put, maybe put your finger here in Exodus 20 and look over at Deuteronomy 5. This is the second law giving, and in it the Sabbath is commanded again. But in Deuteronomy 5, uh, 12 through 15, um, I find it interesting that it doesn't so much focus on creation but on redemption. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, or the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Verse 15, Deuteronomy 5:15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, isn't that interesting? In Exodus 20, the original giving of the Ten Commandments, it goes back to creation. But here it goes to redemption, the fact that God got them out of Egypt. Remember that. So now they're to think about more than just creation, but to think about how with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, God brought them out of Egypt. Well, you know what that got me thinking is how much richer is a Christian Sabbath? We have a lot more to remember than the Jews did at that day. We can remember all of God's redemptive history up to this point. We can think about all that God has done to get you saved. What a journey it's been. For 4,000 years, from the time of Abraham through the time of Christ up until the present day, think of all that God's done to get you saved. 
And I think that's a fit ground for meditation on the Lord's day, don't you? To meditate on the fact that with a mightier arm and with a more outstretched arm, he redeemed you from sin through the uh, work of Jesus Christ. But there you see in Deuteronomy 5 a repeating of this Sabbath regulation, but this time tied to the Exodus. Now, along with the law came some stern punishments for disobedience. Exodus 31, 14 and 15. It says, observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Did you see that? I mean, that is very stern. Well, that's the Mosaic Covenant. If you desecrate the Sabbath, you'd be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. And then again in Exodus 35, 2 and 3. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it must be put to death. There it's stated again. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So now we've got the fire regulation as well. I mean, no fires in your dwelling. And then uh, look at uh, Numbers 15. Take a minute and look at Numbers 15, 32 through 35. Numbers 15, 32 through 35. While the Israelites, it says there, while the Israelites were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. And so there's a specific case study in which a man is found gathering up wood, and they, for some reason, didn't know what to do, even though the commandment had already been given in Exodus what to do. But um, God said very directly, the man must die, and he was. He was put to death. Now, consistent disobedience on this matter of Sabbath observance led to judgment by God. One of the Israelites' most flagrant sins leading up to their national captivity was the violation of God's Sabbath. Even as uh, the kingdom of Judah was self-destructing, from its citizens' sinful behavior, God continued to warn it through the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, look at Jeremiah 17. Turn there and look. Jeremiah 17, beginning at verse 19. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and stand at the gate of the people through which the kings of Judah go in and out. Stand also at the other gates of Jerusalem. Say to them, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, and all the people of Judah and everyone living in Jerusalem who is to come through these gates. This is what the Lord says, be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Do not bring a load out of your houses or do any work on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your forefathers. Yet they did not listen or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and would not listen or respond to discipline. But if you are careful to obey me, declares the Lord, and bring no load through the gates of this city on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy by not doing any work on it, then the kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of the city with their officials. They and their officials will come riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by the men of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, and this city will be inhabited forever. People will come from the towns of Judah 
and the villages around Jerusalem, and from the territory of Benjamin, and the western foothills from the hill country in the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings, incense, and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. But if you do not obey me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying any load as you come through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle an unquenchable fire in the gates of Jerusalem that will consume her fortresses. So that's Jeremiah. Now that's at the end of the national history there, right before the exile of Babylon. And he puts his finger specifically on this issue of working on the Sabbath. And again and again in this account, he says there are people that are carrying loads in and out of the gates on the Sabbath day. And he linked his own judgment of Israel to Sabbath violations. You don't have to turn there, but uh, listen to Ezekiel 20. In Ezekiel 20, the prophet there says, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know me and know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Yet they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. They despised my judgments and did not walk in my statutes, but profaned my Sabbaths. And then again in Ezekiel 22, uh, 26, uh, the nation's priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. So both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, prophesying there at the end of Israel's national history, right before the time of the exile to Babylon, both of them put their finger on this issue of Sabbath violation. And it's interesting, in the Ezekiel passage, he said one of the purposes of the Sabbath is that you would know the Lord. And you can stop and think about how reasonable this is. If you're just working, 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 our faith is a cerebral faith, among other things. It takes time to reflect on the Lord, doesn't it? It takes time to work on the scriptures. It takes time to work through a 12-point sermon that I preached this morning. I mean, it just it's not easy to take all that in. I'm still taking it all in. And I've been going over it for months now. It just takes time. And if all you're doing is just working, working, working all the time, you will not know the Lord the way you could if you would uh, uh, keep his Sabbath holy. And, and the people did not know the Lord. They just kept on working. Now think with me why they would do this. Why would they keep on working except that they had forsaken the Lord and had no interest in spiritual things and wanted to advance themselves materially? It really is an Esau-ish thing to do to trade your birthright for a bowl of stew because you can get ahead, you can get advanced, you can get some extra work done. And that's the reason they did it. And so they were exiled, not for that reason alone, but for many other reasons, but the prophets put their finger on that as evidence of the fact they had drifted from the Lord. Now, after they were restored uh, to the promised land, um, Nehemiah was particularly zealous on this issue. Now, I'll tell you what, Nehemiah is a fireball. Uh, he really is. He did not waste any, any time. He was the governor, in effect, of the rebuilt city of Jerusalem. And there, um, it says in Nehemiah 13, 15 and following, In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day, men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem. So these are Gentiles. They were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. 
when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gate so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem there by the gate. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. And that doesn't mean for ordination. I mean, they knew what he meant. They were, they were going to get arrested. If they spent the night outside the gate on the Sabbath, they were going to get arrested. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. That was a wise choice. Nehemiah meant what he said. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then, typical of Nehemiah, he says this, Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. That's his way of saying, Now, I did this good thing. Keep it in mind, Lord, on Judgment Day. But that's uh, Nehemiah establishing uh, the Sabbath. So once restored as a nation, they were determined never to make the same mistake again. Consequently, over several centuries, Jewish religious authorities crafted meticulous regulations that detailed exactly what they considered was and wasn't permissible on the Sabbath. They veered from one ditch into the other, from ignoring and abusing the Sabbath to demanding an oppressive legalistic observance of it. This brings us to the New Testament time, and this is the Pharisaic extreme. Now, the Zondervan Bible Dictionary in its article on the Sabbath describes how extreme these measures had become by Christ's day. The religious code uh, regarding the Sabbath listed 39 principal classes of prohibited actions. Now, get ready for all these ing words. Sowing, plowing, reaping, gathering into sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking... Each of these chief enactments was further discussed and elaborated so that there are actually several hundred things a conscientious law-abiding Jew could not do on the Sabbath. So each one of the major verbs had subverbs below it. You know what I'm saying? For example, uh, there, was, there were prohibitions about tying a knot, but then they found that that was too general. So they were going to get specific about what kinds of knots you could or couldn't tie. They had to state what kinds of knots were prohibited and what kind were not. It was accordingly laid down that allowable knots were those that could be untied with one hand. I wonder if there are knots you could tie with one hand. Have you ever tried to tie your shoes with one hand? What kind of knot could you tie with one hand? Were you allowed to use your teeth, I wonder? Suppose you used your teeth in one hand. Did it matter if it was the right hand or the left hand? Now, the prohibition regarding writing on the Sabbath went to that level of specificity. It was further defined as follows. He who writes two letters with his right or his left hand, whether one kind of letter or two kinds, is guilty of breaking the Sabbath. He uh, even who should from forgetfulness write two letters is guilty. Also, he who writes on two walls which form an angle or the two tablets of his account book so that they can be read together is guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Now this gets incredibly oppressive, doesn't it? And it's so bizarre how these regulations confront what Jesus was doing once he started to work. Uh, meticulous definitions of work came face to face with the healing power of Christ. And it went so far, in my opinion, as to condemn to hell those who refuse to see the work of God in Christ because of their preconceived notions about what could and could not be done on a Sabbath. They would say, I mean, to them, it was proof positive this man cannot be from God. He violates the Sabbath. 
And so Jesus, very, very plainly in John chapter 7, he says, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Why are you upset at me for healing a, a whole, the whole man on the Sabbath? And then he says, stop judging by mere appearance and make a right judgment. Now I tell you, when it comes to the Sabbath, that's something all of us must take to heart. It is very easy for us to go so far back the other way where we say that the Sabbath has nothing to do with us as Christians. And I think Jesus would say, at least this much, please, Christians. Don't judge by mere appearance, even on those New Testament verses that seem to give you freedom on the Sabbath. Does it really say that the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments is no longer uh, valid for us? Does it really say that? That's the thing. We have to not judge by mere appearance, but make a right judgment. And that's exactly, I think, what Jesus is calling us to do. Now that brings me to the next major heading, and that is Jesus and the Sabbath. Now this is a big topic. We're not going to finish it tonight, but I at least want to begin. Jesus, I think, purposely sought to challenge their views on the Sabbath. How many times does he heal on the Sabbath? It's almost like that was big healing day. You know, he would do it on purpose. I think he was purposely finding ways to challenge their thinking. Jesus never lacked courage on this, did he? I mean, in anything. I feel like Jesus put out every fire with kerosene. Have you ever noticed that? Every time somebody would come to him on, on an issue, he would put out the fire with kerosene. Look at, at John chapter 5. You see exactly what I mean. John chapter 5. Very good example of this whole issue. In John 5, 1 through 15, there's the account of the healing at the pool. Now, this is a paralyzed man, can't walk, he's at the pool. And uh, apparently the tradition goes that if you were a sick person near the pool and an angel came down and stirred the water, the first one into the pool would get healed. Now, I don't know if there actually had been a healing years ago. Uh, apparently it had enough stock that there were people there waiting for the stirring of the waters. But this poor paralyzed man has a real problem. He can't get in the pool. And so I wondered what he was waiting for. I mean, he's got no friends and he can't move. And there he is waiting for the stirring of the water. And all it is is frustrating to him because he's always going to be at least second into the pool. He's never going to get healed that way. Jesus doesn't even bother with the stirring of the waters. He just asks him, do you want to get well? Which is an interesting question when you stop and think about it. But he does ask him, do you want to get well? And he said, yes. And uh, he said, well, he actually says, I have no one to help me get in the pool. And then he says, rise, take up your mat and walk. Now, all of a sudden, we've got a problem. He's carrying his mat. And the Jewish Sabbath police saw him. And there he was, a mat carrier. He was no less than a mat carrier. He was not a healed man giving testimony to uh, Christ. He was a mat carrier. Who gave you the right to carry your mat? Well, obviously, mat carries at one level, but the one who commanded the mat carrying, now that's at a whole worse level. And so they hunt down Jesus because not only did he heal on the Sabbath, but he actually gave this man permission to carry his mat home. Now, if they're telling you what kind of knots you can tie on the Sabbath, mat carrying is a big violation of the Sabbath. And that's exactly the way that they saw what Jesus was doing. And so in John 5:16, they come to him. And so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. And Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, like I told you, he always puts out fire with kerosene. See, at this point, Jesus is doing two things. First of all, he's challenging their idea of what God is doing. And second of all, he's calling God his own father 
making himself equal with God. That's what the text says. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, many of these Sabbath breakings, so to speak, of Jesus, in which he's healing, immediately after Jesus has confronted them with, the, with his view of the Sabbath, or making a statement like the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, or when he says, which of you, if your if you're, if you're, uh, animal falls into the ditch, won't lift it out? I mean, how, how come you're, you're criticizing me for healing on the Sabbath? Inevitably, they go out and conspire to kill him. Now, I'm wondering, was conspiring to murder the Son of God permitted on the Sabbath? I mean, if you can't tie a knot, if you can't do all these other things, are you allowed to meet together and have a conspiracy to murder the Son of God? Apparently, they could. That was all right. But uh, not carrying, uh, mat carrying and not tying and all that was, was not permitted. And so Jesus then gives them one of his great extended teachings in John 5 about what he does. He said, basically, I don't do anything on my own, but the Father is in me and he's doing his work and he wants me to do this on the Sabbath. So Jesus was adjusting their understanding of the Sabbath. Now, if you go through and look at all of the things that either Jesus did or said could be done on the Sabbath, you come up with a kind of a list of things. Bear baiting is not one of them. I think you'll notice that. All right? Cockfighting and going to body plays was not part of anything Jesus did on the Sabbath. But he did go to synagogue on the Sabbath, and he did read the scriptures and teach on the Sabbath in Luke chapter 4. Uh, he mentioned that priests in the temple, in a very strong word, desecrate the day, and yet they are innocent. So that means anybody in the ministry should not lament that the Lord's Day or the Sabbath ends up being your hardest working day of the week. That's just the way it is. And Jesus said in Matthew 12:5, the priests in the temple desecrate the day, and yet they are guiltless, they're innocent. And so Jesus upheld works of piety on the Sabbath. Jesus also upheld works of mercy on the Sabbath. In Mark 3, uh, 1 through 6, uh, it says, Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus uh, said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? So in effect, he's going to that conspiracy thing. Is it lawful to do evil on the Sabbath? Is that all right? How about doing good? Is it lawful to do good or to do evil? But they remain silent. Oh, their silence was so wicked, so wicked, so evil. And Jesus thought so. In verse 5, Mark 3, 5, he looked around at them in anger. There was a deep anger at their hardness of heart here. I mean, here's a man with a shriveled hand, and he has the opportunity to be freed from it, and they don't care about him at all. Mercy is the heart of the law. Mercy triumphs over judgment. But they wouldn't have any of it. And so Jesus just ignores them at that point. Distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. But Jesus, therefore, established that works of mercy and of healing could be done on the Sabbath. And he does this again and again. There's no point in multiplying examples. You know what I'm referring to. Christ upheld works of necessity on the Sabbath, things you had to do to stay alive. And he made stunning statements about the Sabbath. For example, this one, in Mark 2, 27 and 28, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's two stunning statements. First of all, the Sabbath is for our benefit. Yes, it is the Lord's Day for us as Christians, or it's consecrated or holy unto the Lord, but it's for our benefit. Think again of Psalm 50. 
God doesn't need anything from us at all. He doesn't need the Sabbath rest. We need it. And so it's for our benefit. Second of all, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That means he gets to decide what's good and what's not on the Sabbath. My question is, did Jesus throw it out entirely? That's my question. Did he get rid of it? Did he say we don't need to do anything that you would consider Sabbath? It's gone now. It's fulfilled. Now my question about that is, did Jesus do that with dietary regulations? Was there ever a point in Jesus' ministry that he declared all foods clean? The answer is yes, he did. At one point it says very plainly, everything that goes into the mouth passes out of the body. Jesus thereby declared all foods clean. Now that's a problem for those of us that are reading the Old Testament, and God clearly commanded that and commanded circumcision, and they wrestled through dietary regulations, and they wrestled through circumcision in the New Testament. But is there ever any statement on Jesus that the Sabbath has been fulfilled and there's no need for us to follow it uh, anymore? Jesus also made the statement, my father is always working. We already saw that. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Does the father work on the Sabbath? Well, let me tell you something. If the father didn't, you would cease to exist. That pew you're sitting on right now, if he's not working to hold it together, you cease, it would cease to exist. But it wouldn't trouble you because you wouldn't be there either, okay? God holds the universe together, and he's constantly exerting energy, immense amounts of work to keep everything going. The sun burning at his command, by the word of his command, he upholds it constantly, and he does it through Jesus. And so he's always working. Jesus made that st statement. But did Jesus uphold the Sabbath for the new covenant? Now you can argue, and some do, they say there's never a restatement of the Sabbath regulation in the New Testament. Now, that's debatable, that's debatable, but it is possible there's never a restatement. My question is, so what? So what? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so I guess in a way you could look at it that as a soldier standing post, you're kind of there until your commanding officer tells you to stand down. So what we would need in the New Testament is not necessarily a restatement of the law, but a contradictory statement similar to Jesus declared all foods clean. And you're not going to find that in Jesus. What you're going to see instead is healing and appropriate behavior on the Sabbath. And by healing, I don't mean healing of bodies. I mean healing our mind and our understanding of what should be done on the Lord's day. Getting rid of all those ing regulations and getting back to what it is that the Sabbath was meant to be. Not once does he actively command, you shall keep the Sabbath. But does he need to? And so at this point, we're going to, we're going to stop. But I want to urge you, if you would, to pray through next week as I prepare and get ready for the message next week. Think of it this way, and I, I think it was Randy Alcorn and his teaching on the tithe that uh, helped me with this. I do not believe the tithe is commanded openly in the New Testament. But here's my question. Have you ever seen any kind of moral issue that's established in the Old Testament that's not increased and intensified for those in the New Covenant? You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone is angry with his brother is in danger of the fire of hell. And you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. Does Jesus expect us to go to a lower standard or to a higher one? Now, what should be the nature of our observance of the Lord's Day? That, God willing, will be our discussion next week. 
But I think we need a day. We need a day in which we focus on the Lord, a day in which we come here and worship, a day in which we fellowship with one another, in which we pray, in which we set it apart as holy unto the Lord, in which we choose willfully to not do certain things that are permitted the rest of the week so that we can focus better on what the Lord is calling us to be. We need it, and I hope and pray that God will work in us. Isaiah 58, and we'll talk about that passage, God willing, next time. 58:13, that we will call the Sabbath a delight, not a burden, something that refreshes and encourages us in our faith. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.